Hey, welcome to the Very Hicken Bros podcast. Are we recording episode nine of season three? Um, we're starting a new schedule, trying to get back into routine this year. Um, we've been dealing with the transitions, the holidays, and moving and stuff. I think we're gonna start a new schedule where we record on Fridays and uh, post on Saturday so yeah we'll be back on schedule again Um, Nick is with us howdy howdy and Trevor I'm good how you guys doing I'm just fine just uh, usual working at the Chick-fil-a yeah this past week uh, Trevor helped me switch from Ubuntu because for some reason the Ethernet port wasn't working and it wasn't receiving Wi-Fi. So Trevor was nice enough to uh, switch me to Linux Mint. And it's surprisingly easy. (laughs) Want to get into the topics? Yeah, so I wanted to start out with um, talking about how Sony... Is still selling its consoles at a loss. I guess the PS4 might not have been sold at a loss, but I remember like in high school, the PS3 was being like sold at six hundred bucks, and that was still at a loss. I was surprised. Wow! It doesn't I guess it's not that surprising in general. At the beginning of the life cycle, they kind of pack a lot of hardware into it um, for what it is at the time, and then what a year or two, the costs have gone down, and they can start making money off of it. With the intent that, in the meantime, they'll make money on the software. Mm-hmm. It seems like they're losing money more on the digital edition, which is interesting because it doesn't have the optical drive, which makes sense because maybe well, there's probably way they, more profit in the uh, in the, the actual one because the optical drive does not cost a hundred dollars. So <laughs> yeah, they, they can just they can just pack that in, and then you know there's more profit for you. Yeah, but it seems like the overall um, operating like cost income increased to like 2.5 billion from last quarter 2019 or over what year over year that maybe yeah depend like from 2020 to 2021 that makes sense they didn't specifically say they're losing on the ps5 but i guess that's what they broke it out to be but yeah, I, I was kind of surprised. I thought they'd like definitely want to make money on profit on hardware. It seems like Nintendo is the only ones that <laughs> really mastered that. Did you say the digital version? They're losing more money on the digital version. Yeah, because to put a little lens in there that reads disc is not a hundred bucks. So, do you know why it? Yeah, the the disc the what, the version that accepts discs is a hundred dollars more expensive. So, the the part that they have to add is not a hundred dollars so they can kind of make they can pad their profit a little bit more on that or their margin at least oh because yeah they're just going to sell it and whereas there's less room for that in the uh the digital edition because they're it's like you think that there's less there but then there's also less for them to charge for so hmm that's yeah. interesting yeah that was um 
pretty fun to read about. And then uh, an- another update from uh, our fan favorite uh, San Francisco Shock uh, Overwatch team. <laughs> Imanj, I guess you pronounce it. He's, I guess, now a content creator, like the first ever like partnered po- content creator for the team. Hmm. Before they had like their team players like Super or Sinatra, I don't know. They probably just stream on their own, but they aren't like officially part of the team uh, as like a content creator. So I don't know. It seems like a good idea to have like a official partnered streamer. Um, hmm. Yeah, and I've seen he's pretty good. I've seen him in some of those like collab <laughs> compilations of like oh mo- most viewed uh, Twitch Overwatch uh, clips. So yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> so what is the purpose of this content uh, that he's creating? Um, is he just like sponsored by San Francisco Shock or? I mean, he's partnered with him, so I guess he gets a. Uh, be like a um, face for it like a representative maybe maybe he'll be like the person that like edits and I don't know I don't know how he's gonna be used but yeah hmm. he he was a, originally a um, like a streamer for the fusion back in like the old days but he's back as a overwatch uh, streamer for the Strock now did you have uh, anything or you want me to go on? Yeah, I have a little thing. I was listening to this podcast. It's called Bankless. I actually sent an email to these people because they're pretty inspiring. And I was laid off and I was looking for career opportunities. And I asked them about... Well, Bankless is a cryptocurrency Ethereum podcast. And uh, I asked him, what could I do to make a career out of cryptocurrencies and stuff? And he said, oh, you could either be like a coder or somebody, a software developer or something that helps develop the um, contracts and the software. Or you could be like a marketing person that helps sell products and stuff. And uh, I was listening to a podcast that they made like within a week or so. They were interviewing this one of the founders of this protocol called Graph. Graph enables people to contribute to this protocol where they take people's data and um, sell it kind of. (laughs) They don't really sell it. But you make these graphs to compare different uh, currencies so you can know if a currency is going up or down. And if you make the graph better than others, you'll get more money. They they have different uh, roles. Like uh, they have somebody that makes the graphs and one person that is like a delegator and another person is like, someone that like distributes or something 
I don't know. I, I don't really have the rules written out, but I'll include the podcast link in the description or the, yeah. But one thing that was cool is that in this podcast episode, he actually said that he's going to put links in his episode talking and those links help you learn how to contribute to the graph and be make this a career opportunity for yourself and I was thinking man if I listened to this top podcast or this podcast came out like six months ago I could be working in the crypto industry and I think it'd be really cool to contribute to that uh, revolution kind of like changing to have our transactions based on smart contracts nick have you uh, looked much into uh, cryptocurrencies and stuff like that well i've read a few articles and especially when it was just beginning to kind of become a thing i tried yeah i researched a little bit about it but i don't know i never really thought about it that's something that i was gonna sort of get into i know that in the beginning it was easier for instance like to mine bitcoins but i know from what I've read, it's like it gets more difficult as time goes on because there's fewer of them and you have to have more computing power to kind of compete there. Um, but otherwise, yeah, I don't, you know, I, it's not an area that I've really followed that much. I, I see it when it comes up in other articles, but I haven't looked into it for myself. Maybe, maybe yeah. that's to my detriment. I don't know. I think you're alluding to the happening. <laughs> it's when they, like every four years, they half the amount of rewards to the miners and I don't really think that it is making it it makes the supply and the demand higher but I don't think they're paying the people mining less because the value of the Bitcoin is still (laughs) increasing so I don't think the decrease of Bitcoin is less money um, because the value it does make me wonder if I could have just assigned one of my old computers years ago to like mining for bitcoins. Would I have a bitcoin by now or something? You know, like, I, I don't know how long that takes. But yeah, would I have one? Would I have multiple? Well, if you did it years ago, you probably would have had like a whole bunch of bitcoin. But uh, maybe I should have done that. The hardware probably would have slowed down. A- <laughs> well, I know. Isn't that one of the reasons that lots of high-end video cards become so sought after is because not just because gamers want them, but because they're used in mining cryptocurrency. Yeah. I was listening to a podcast. So there can become shortages of the latest cards. Yeah. I forgot what company is it? Maybe NVIDIA or something. They're thinking about making, uh, cards just for mining. <laughs> They already make accelerator cards for use in machine learning and in like GPU accelerated workflows that are not designed for, you know, gaming or whatever. They have a lot of Mm -hmm. different stuff that they already make. So I'm sure it wouldn't be difficult for them to create something that was more targeted toward those um, audiences. So I kind of, I heard about the graph a long time ago, but for some reason, maybe the resources wasn't there, but the presentation of the resources in the podcast where they have videos and would direct me how to contribute to the graph. I would like to contribute more and be more involved in the crypto ecosystem, but uh, I'm stuck in the traditional career path for now. 
Sounds like you'd have to be diligent at making graphs and seeing how to uh, be better than just <laughs> a random old graph with bars and the differences between currencies. I don't know. Yeah, there's a d- interesting dynamic because there's so many different currencies and different uh, things to compare and there's demand for different currencies more than others so you gotta people may be paid more to make graphs for like the important things and the less popular things kind of are so people people are getting less incentive paid to do like yeah you do do a graph about this one because it's more important but like yeah, it's it's cool because it's decentralized. You're not depending on somebody that could possibly uh, hack the graphs to make <laughs> values of things look higher than they actually are. Everybody is contributing their way. Where so it's like a wiki. Yeah, and it's uh, more accurate because there's people who have roles to moderate, and there's people that's trying to supply the best uh, data and yeah oh another thing i wanted to say is that um this um this is a career path that you don't need to go for an interview it's not you don't need to be hired it's a permissionless system so you could just start working and supplying this data and they'll if they like you they'll just start giving you money because you're contributing well uh i think that's really cool i wish i could do that speaking about halfing uh sega sammy which is uh, apparently uh their former name is splitting their video game and pachinko machines into two separate companies <laughs> which is i think a good thing because no one cares about pachinko machines here in the u.s and then Sega can focus on making better games because I like Sega and I want to see better games from Sega. I always forget that Sega is even still a thing, but maybe that's just because I don't play Sony games. <laughs> <laughs> what else? Does, what other popular games does Sega produce? Like, uh, um, like Yakuza. I no, that's a pretty big series. They came out with like a. Oh, that's a Sega game. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. pretty sure that's a Sega game or Sega. It was on the Sega system on Dreamcast at one point. I don't know. There's Virtua Fighter and a bunch of other... I don't know. I, I'm i not super into... Like, I know Puyo Puyo Tetris is Sega, so... I play that. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, you gotta support Sega and play your Puyo Puyo. Yeah. Yeah, it looks like Sega publishes the Yakuza games, but um, like the developers, somebody's... I guess it's not, it doesn't say Sega, it says some other developers. So maybe it's a division of Sega, but I guess they're the publisher at least. Yeah. And apparently last year, they, in November, they like called for like a voluntary reduct, reductancy of 650 full-time employees. They wonder like maybe if they were like paid off to like stop working. I don't know how you'd do a voluntary... Uh, <laughs> Reduction. It's like, uh, yeah, if you want to quit, go ahead. Like, um, okay. Maybe it might be easier in the COVID times, so people might feel like 
less pressure to work. I wonder if it depends on like what country and like if you already know you're gonna be like getting employment like unemployment benefits. I guess it doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. Sonic is finally getting its own Lego set. Uh, going on with the Sega topic. It's coming from um, like the Sega Mania game, which I I played like a few times over. So I I thought that's cool. I'd get it if it ever comes out. They said they uh, they're taking like fan made like uh, submissions and they're using one of them. So it's pretty cool. One of what? What did the? Did, can you see what was contributed? Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, was it like a boss or another Sonic character <laughs> or like a little animal thing jumping around or <laughs> I'm trying to put it up there but my keyboard's not coming up so he's basically asking which, which fucked up Sonic you can just uh, <laughs> click on the link and you can see it yourself <laughs> wow. um yeah, you could do that also for those listening. <laughs> Other thing, uh, Borderlands 3's developer got bought out by this huge um, group that I didn't know was a thing. Embracer Group actually owns like a bunch of different things. Over the last few years, they've um, purchased THQ Nordic, Knock, uh, Media, Coffee Stain AB, and Amplifier Game Invest, Sabrian Detective, and more. So they have over 50, they have like 57 game development studios over 40 countries. And Gearbox is like pretty big. They do tons of updates for Borderlands 3. And I think they also did that like uh, Medal of Honor series. I think they're going to probably release one of those soon also. It's crazy. Oh, Trevor, I know that the next topic that you have is really uh, <laughs> exciting and uh, um, <laughs> you skipped over mine, so I'll uh, share mine so a little quickly. Yeah. What's your CEO? Yeah, the CEO of Upright. His name is Oded Cohen. <laughs> Oded. Upright. He makes... Uh, Upright is the company that makes that necklace that I wear. It uh, has a thing that vibrates um, whenever I have bad posture. So I, it could uh, keep me diligent on having a good back posture. It's pretty cool because he said um, he's the founder and he originally uh, designed it to help his mother because he had terrible back pain. He didn't really say exactly whether it helped <laughs> her, the, his mother, but the product has helped <laughs> over uh, 600,000 people. Um, they're invi- they're, has it helped you? Yeah, it has helped me. Um, I've kind of gotten a little casual with it. And I don't know, it's kind of hard to make a ergonomically comfortable like station. It's kind of annoying how things are not really designed very well to <laughs> be comfortable and stuff with everything fitting together well and stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it has helped me. 
the upright company was acquired by a company called uh, Dario, Dario Health, and Oded was ex excited about this opportunity because the Dario company has a broad array of digital care programs and tools that'll help uh, them develop products even quicker and uh, better products. So it's kind of nice to hear that the company is not just being absorbed and well, I don't know, but it seems like it's going to benefit uh, the product line and the hardware that they um, produce. I mean, it's kind of interesting to hear that they're planning to make more products. They're just one simple product. <laughs> I don't know what other things that they'll develop. I have a exciting update from Final Fantasy fourteen. Uh, they have a new major update coming in November or fall. I'm guessing they they say fall, but I mean it's probably November October. Um, I took a lot of notes because I watched it live, so I was kind of excited. <laughs> they um, it's gonna be called N Walker, and it's. The trailer is pretty cool. You should watch it if anyone's uh, interested in that game. Yeah, you should uh, supply the link. You could just Google it. It's probably like trending or something. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> the um, there's a few updates, but like the major updates, I thought was pretty interesting. Was um, they're trying to like fix the game like fundamentally because the battle systems like kind of breaking the game there's like the damage you do where like the numbers are just too big and it like causes stress on communications and like bugs in the servers <laughs> so like in the last update they had to like basically bandage it <laughs> just like like emergency patching it and uh, some of the issues would be like numbers would go back to zero and stuff like that so for this update they're going to um and one of the bosses for example in the last patch had 44 million hp um so the plan is for the values in like if you have level 51 to 80 they're going to be like reducing like truncating the the character growth so the max damage is lowered but it's like it's going to scale relatively to everything so and XP, anything you like get from monsters would be lower. So it takes the same amount of time. It's not like game breaking. It's just like it's gonna help the system like not like have issues. It's kinda weird how big numbers messes with it. Yeah, they said something about like having because of floating numbers they have to like truncate it and if they truncate it sometimes it Kind of like in Pokemon, they, it like makes bugs because the damage value goes so high. It has to like the formula messes it up, and then the game doesn't <laughs> process it right. So hmm. the damage from a level eighty mage, a black mage with uh, fire four, did fifty thousand damage before with a level five hundred thirty item. Uh. 
now it's down to 10,000. So it's like getting cut down by a fifth or two a fifth of the damage. So I thought, oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. I've never actually like thought of like how people fix the games. So it's a funny way to do it. And then they like announced a, a system update where you can actually, um, they'd be able to like party up with friends from different worlds. So you don't have to like visit just to party up. And then people are like concerned, like, oh, what about the world economy? Is, like, is that going to be like affected? And then they, he's like, well, like <laughs> when the last update with the world visit system, like it didn't do anything. It was negligible. So like, don't worry about like the world economy. <laughs> Yeah, and there's a bunch hmm. of other little announcements that are not worth talking about if you're not really a game playing of it. <laughs> but um, they did announce that Final Fantasy XIV is coming to PS5, so that's super nice. It's going to be in 4K finally and faster load times and slightly faster FPS. And the open beta is April 13th, so should uh, start playing, Nick. Hmm. Uh, I don't know. I tried to play a little bit. It didn't seem that. It didn't seem to captivate me. But I don't know. Maybe I should give it another try. Yeah, and it's a free update. So, like, if you have a license, um, register license for the PS4 version, and it's just automatically upgraded. You just have to pay the monthly sub if you want to play. So they had two modes. They said it would be it'd be like the 4K mode, and then like if you want better frame rates, you could play it in 2K. But that was pretty cool and then they announced like the Final Fantasy Fan Festival which is going to be digitally which is expected now in this season of the COVID but it's free for everyone and it's going to be live concerts so I'm excited for that I like Final Fantasy music it's pretty good (laughs) so yeah that's um the Final Fantasy XIV uh, update for today. <laughs> <laughs> well, for some reason, uh, lately, or I think the last podcast, I haven't posted it yet. I'm, I've been working on editing it all week. But uh, I've been talking more about cars and transportation, and I'll be doing that today. <laughs> Argo AI, their CEO actually has a podcast also, but um, Argo AI... Is a company that works with Ford and uh, mainly Ford, but they also work with the uh, Volkswagen. They have put out their fourth prototype, and they're terming it as product intent, meaning that it's like the final prototype before commercial application. Um, Ford actually was intending to deploy Argo AI's services this year, but uh, they didn't want to deploy it into this uh, pandemic uh, concluding year. (laughs) Hopefully concluding. (laughs) They're planning to release their Argo AI's uh, product next year. Yeah, so that's exciting. Um, They're finally... uh, planning to release their level four uh, car one thing that's interesting is that this uh, car has two computer systems the primary system and the backup system they work parallel at the same time 
and they don't do the exact same thing. Backup is not like if the primary system completely fails. It's like a backup, meaning that they have different like algorithms and it has the backup has a more unique uh, perception and more robust uh, response to unexpected uh, situations so yeah so like when the main system sees something weird the backup system would catch it and um it uh, helps the car um, recover quickly. Nice. Does that make sense? <laughs> so what is so what's the the whole thing about the prototype for so you're saying the last this new the latest prototype is closest to the, is closer to the final product is that right? Yeah, this the fourth prototype here is the last prototype it should this is uh, intended to be the final commercial product and they were planning to launch this year but it's not a good year to launch the mm-hmm. the service this car has actually been seen all over the united states in many cities so it's not just uh, like one little town like i was talking like <laughs> last time yeah we have Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, that's where they're founded at. The cars have been found at testing and driving around at uh, Silicon Valley, Detroit, Miami, Washington, D.C., and um, some other locations. Google has a update for driving that, or walking, that if you have an Android phone, you can... Um, <laughs> finally split screen your street view and the map view so you can kind of see like what if this street you're looking at act like what it looks like while you're looking at the map so you, you can actually see like oh, okay so i'm going down the right street without having to like i don't know it seems like a obvious update but i don't know why it's not on like, iphone i guess they don't have um like uh, app permissions to do things like that. Well, I don't think it's that. It's probably just that they want to limit it to Android first to give them, you know, another selling point for Android, right? Like, it makes the Android experience seem better. Usually, Google goes for first for iPhone though before Android. Hmm. Well, I can't imagine. I mean, I don't think it has to do with any sort of technical limitation. I mean, it's just another app, and apps have been able to do any sort of. So there, there are apps that do things like that already that have two different views, so. It's probably, I think it's probably some internal sort of product decision. That's good. But maybe it'll come to that. I guess more features like that are better, though I do think it's interesting. I mean, if you're looking at the map and like the sort of overview map, I mean, you're and if you, if you happen to be on that street, you can just look around and literally street view with your eyes. But I guess if you're trying to scope something <laughs> out beforehand, you it makes it easier to like get where you're to place yourself in the scene. I mean, I, um, if you're yeah. researching or something, sometimes I do that. If I'm going to go to a place I've never been before, I, I usually, you know, like I'll look around, but like, when you, when you mentioned like, Oh, you can like look around and like, well, you could also literally street view. I mean, I, I usually go when I navigate, I usually don't just like listen to Google maps. I usually like to like see like, okay, how many turns am I going to do before I actually get to my location? And I, 
usually like to see like what I'm going to be turning because sometimes the streets are like weird and you have to like get into the left lane from like three lanes over or you're going to miss it and it's like less than a mile to get there so it's good to know and you just go metal through the you just go off and to the ocean i have a little topic here that was kind of cool after what's basically become a year of this sort of corona apocalypse that we've had um in the new uh, ios beta apple's enabling a uh the ability to unlock your phone if you have an Apple Watch on that's been authenticated. So it'll do, um, if you if you enable it, it'll do, a I guess, a partial face scan. This is for Face ID phones. And right now, the, the Face ID scan will fail if you're wearing a mask because obviously you can't measure most of your face. But um, with the new feature, it'll be able to scan, I guess, part of your face, and then um, it'll check if you're wearing your watch. And if your watch has been like unlocked on your wrist and it has never been taken off, they can know that it's on the right person's wrist and therefore it'll trust it and unlock your phone. And uh, that seems pretty cool. I think at first it sounds like an obvious choice, like why why didn't this come earlier? But I think it also comes to, from what I've read, it's like it's a chicken and egg situation where Mm -hmm. some, uh, well, because you can, both your phone and your watch have sensitive data. Like you can make payments with both of them or whatever. So it needs, however you use to unlock them needs to be really, really secure. Mm -hmm. And so right now currently you can use the phone to unlock the watch if it's on your wrist like it's the phone authenticates the watch but if reversing that also takes up some engineering work to make sure that it's all very airtight because you don't want a situation in which like any confusion happens or it's easy to hijack or something where you can just slip through and somehow unlock one of the devices like you know you unlock the watch with the phone but the phone was unlocked by the watch so which one happens first and all that stuff so i don't know i don't know personally how long it took for them to get it working but it's cool that it's here or it will be once it's released um, i know that for a lot of people they've been lucky enough to mostly stay home but a lot of us still have to work during these times so uh, i actually use my phone at work sometimes for various reasons either it's just checking a message or just for work stuff i have to check checking slack messages or taking a photo of something and it's you know obviously i'm wearing a mask all day at work so it'll be really cool for anybody um with a face ID enabled phone to be able to unlock their phone with their watch if they're wearing one. So that was kind of cool. Yeah, I heard about that today or last night. It's it's cool that they're finally taking steps to enabling a secure way to doing it instead of just like saying, okay, you can now use it with your mask on and like not have any like backup to like guarantee that it's you or something. Yeah. I mean, on one hand, you, it's like, oh, great. Like, that feature comes to people who have already spent two to $300 at least on a watch. But let's also be honest. Like, to have to have that problem, you already have to have spent hundreds of dollars on a Face ID phone. So, I don't know. A lot of the... Uh, many people, the, like millions of those people who have those phones probably have watches too. So, it's going to help a decent amount of people, I think. And also, if you really want to get Face ID um, unlocked with the mask, might as well get a watch anyways because it'd be nice. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if it, if, it, if it works well enough that maybe it'll sell a few watches, but I think at this point it's just about, you know, making it easier for, easier for people to use their phones because the reality is that we're masked up for a lot of the time and we need still need to use our phones. I mean, obviously we can type in a passcode and maybe it's insecure, but I still have mine set to a four-digit one, so I can type it in pretty quick, but it's still annoying. I'd rather wait a half second for, to, for it to authenticate my watch than for me to just sit there and type in a passcode like a caveman. Like a... 
did the article or what you have been uh, told did it tell you like how the interface will be like or what you'd have to do to unlock your phone as far as i i mean i don't i don't have any first-hand experience but from what i've read in the article and stuff I'm, I'm pretty sure it would just look like a normal face id and then probably take a half second i don't know how long it takes but i guess if it fails the full scan it would probably just automatically check if your watch is on you and then unlock I don't think you really have to do anything. It doesn't seem like you'd have to initiate it. I think it'll just try the face scan, and if it detects a mask, it'll probably check the watch. So, I don't know. Hmm. That's usually what they do. They try to just pretty much silently do it. You shouldn't have to make any extra taps or anything. So that'll be nice. Yeah, it's a little annoying, but nowadays you just just have to deal with the mask. The mask is always annoying anyways. (laughs) Samsung uh, has an update that... Um, finally makes their DeX uh, system on PCs like wireless, but you have to have a sis- uh, the newest Galaxy S21 to use it. I, I was talking to Alex yesterday, the day before yesterday, about DeX, and DeX is interesting because it's like the exact replica of your phone, but on a desktop environment that they use. It's interesting because like it's cool yeah you can use it as a computer but i wonder like people say it works pretty well it's just it's a little lag but like they should make it wireless anyways because the technology is there already they should just like enable it for like the newest like maybe the galaxy s20 or the 20 ultra maybe they will do that maybe i'll like back uh, enable retroactively later on yeah, I didn't want to talk about this because it's basically casting your screen onto a a monitor. So I don't know why it's such a big technology. Uh, they might have maybe they have different uh, advantages. I don't know. It's doesn't seem to be. Usually, you have to have hardware to be able that. to cast it. Um... Like, to cast your Chromecast, you have to have a Chromecast. You can't just cast it to the TV unless it's built in, like a smart TV. So maybe maybe it doesn't work on older PCs. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know if the wireless uh, decks makes it more complicated or less complicated. <laughs> I think people might be more used to connecting to a computer than to just doing the wireless stuff. I don't know if... I talked to you guys about Carl Pay's new venture. Founding pe- people is starting a um, new company called Nothing. And that was last week, I think last Monday. The reason why he's calling it Nothing is because he wants it to be um, a seamless, a, like basically a product that you don't have to think about, but it's as useful as maybe a phone or something that you do like think about be interesting to see what he ends up coming out with and that he was like trying not to refer to oneplus but he said like yeah we don't want to make it just like incremental upgrades basically that like look like any other thing or just takes one phone and rebrands it so it seems like he wants to like make his own devices and innovate there so that's good well, I I don't know if you heard, but uh, GM had a partnership with uh, Nikola. 
they used to be a car company I think I don't know if the company is still around but the founders and the practices of Nicola was a little fraudulent so GM had to quit uh, working with Nicola um, they were hoping to develop uh, hydrogen powered uh, semi trucks <laughs> and uh, they made a new partnership and the deal or the venture is with uh, um, the companies Navistar they make uh, trucks semi trucks and this company called one H2 they obviously work with the hydrogen <laughs> they do hydrogen fuel stuff so yeah um, Navistar and 1H2 they're developing the truck and they're going to put that into production this year and surprisingly uh, GM is going to supply the hydrogen they call it uh, hydrotech fuel cells so yeah I thought that was kind of interesting hydrotech. Uh, <laughs> that GM um, produces hydrogen fuel and the, their role in this uh, partnership is not to produce the cars but supply the hydrogen fuel um It'll be interesting to see if hydrogen gains any traction as like a consumer, um, like fuel source, basically. I mean, you, we, we kind of know that electrification is going to come to most cars and come to most consumer cars in what, the next 10 to 20 years. So is hydrogen just sort of a blip on the map there or is that really does, does it have any like long-term future? I don't, I'm not really, I haven't read enough to know, but I, I feel like most of the talk is always around electric cars um, and battery power, you know, so it'll be inter interesting to see what happens with that whole hydrogen thing. I know there's probably benefits to it in some ways, but um, it doesn't seem like it's as mainstream as just a standard electric car. Yeah, I think eventually, I don't know, it seems like Tesla and Elon Musk, they're try they're trying to, like, cut it down but I think hydrogen fuel and hydrogen cars could replace uh, electric I don't know why they focus so much about batteries I think they should go into hydrogen fuel <laughs> um, GM thinks that the uh, hydrogen fuel for uh, the semi trucks will be more ideal because um, the fueling of the semi-trucks are more centralized. I think I mentioned something like that before. And the range they expect about uh, 500 miles and uh, um, they'll be able to refuel in within 15 minutes. And they plan to start uh, testing the trucks in 2022 and make them commercially available by 2024. 
Yeah, so this is not uh, autonomous. It seems like they're... The, the article didn't say anything about autonomous vehicles. <laughs> hmm. So you're one of your new topics of hydrogen cell or hydrotech. Yeah, I'd rather talk about hydrogen fuel than electric cars. <laughs> yeah. Rolling over to um, rollables. <laughs> Samsung has a new rollable phone that's already been teased compared to LG's. Uh, I guess you could say vaporware now. Um, Samsung, we know that they've been venturing and going into foldables. They, I think their next foldable, the Fold 3, or the Flip 3, is going to be like basically a Samsung Galaxy S21 that like folds in half, which would be nice. But the um, rollable, it says that they're going to basically the design on the sides are going to stay the same no matter if it's rolled out or not but the the patent shows it can go from 6 to 8 inches that's fair it's a big a big enough like roll I guess like change to have a to be significant I feel like 8 inches is good enough to want like as a tablet <laughs> because I don't know <laughs> 8 inches big enough I think so I'll 6 to 8 is not that much of an improvement yeah, but I'll, I take, guess it's I'll take 8 inches you know um, well, if you can unroll it then sure <laughs> the um, the design seems like it'd be better than folding because you don't have a um, crease in the middle because I think that's like the major big thing people don't want to see is a crease in the middle of your screen I mean it's probably like a notch you probably ignore it after a few times of using it but still it's probably gonna be annoying to people so yeah I'm excited to see if rollerballs actually happen if LG and Samsung actually duke it out or something yeah I don't think LG could win duking out against Samsung <laughs> Do you think they should have just skipped the foldable and just gone straight to the rollable phones? <laughs> How can you skip the foldable if you can... I don't know. I feel like foldables have... People have been talking about it, so it's been useful. I mean, I don't know. Maybe the rollable technology was hmm. not in... Not enough like research has been around until now, so... I know some of them has been they've had rollable screens for a while so maybe they had to like make it touch and work in a phone uh, form factor hmm. yeah maybe the transition was essential because people are a little more used to flipping phones kind of I mean no no one's bought a phone yet so <laughs> nope <laughs> My last topic is uh, will transition into a uh, uh, more theoretical kind of um, astronomical news. 
it's kind of a new concept uh, that might uh, surprise or bewilder you. <laughs> um, Amazon has been investing in a lot of companies intended for sustainability and especially towards uh, transportation like uh, carbon cure technologies Penchom Rivian I've spoken about uh, Zero Avia they have also invested in turn tide technologies and uh, redwood materials but uh, with this past week they announced that they're investing in a company called Infinum their technology is pretty crazy because they have developed a fuel that could be used in uh, just normal gas cars but it does not produce any carbon exhaust and they're trying to use this investment that they received from Amazon and Mitsubishi and AP and a bunch of other um, investment firms um, to make this uh, more uh, scalable. Um, it's kind of interesting because we were talking before about how uh, gas cars might be going out of style or something but it seems like we are developing the technology to make uh, f fuels that could be put in these gas cars that do not contribute to um, carbon footprint carbon yeah the process is kind of interesting it's kind of a combination between hydrogen fuel and uh, carbon dioxide. <laughs> they use uh, renewable power and water to produce hydrogen by electrolysis, And then they take hydrogen and carbon dioxide. They use that to be converted into syngas in the Infinum reactor, a pr proprietary catalyst thing they call it co2 cat and then that gas is fed through another proprietary synthesis step that directly produces high value fuels that creates fuels that do not produce any carbon exhaust So, yeah, that's kind of interesting. <laughs> it's like <laughs> hydrogen fuel, but another step, or maybe a couple other steps to make it applicable to any car. So you could keep your uh, loud car and <laughs> still not contribute to the carbon footprint of most cars. So, I mean... Somehow it eliminates the emissions of the carbon that you're burning. 
inside the hydrogen. Sometimes, somehow, it's gonna be converted into energy without emitting it. Yeah, they process the carbon dioxide. It seems like carbon is essential to the fuel for some reason, <laughs> and they combine it with uh, they convert carbon dioxide and hydrogen to make this fuel, this gas. It'd be cool if you could just put like sparkling water into your machine and get it going. That's what I want. <laughs> yeah. Put sparkling water into my mouth and get me going. <laughs> yeah. Um, hopefully, I don't know. I feel like hydrogen fuel. Like I've I've said this to Alex before. It's just like. It's hard. This it's just hard to like think of a future where hydrogen fuel is going to be like the mainstream because how are we going to get like people just to invest in all these like hydrogen plants and then somehow get it to the customers where Shell is already buying up like a hundred percent of these like the largest EV system and network in EU and then they can just like convert over the gas stations to electric. And it wouldn't be that hard compared to you. They'd have to, like, start making all these hydrogen plants. And who knows? They have to do some kind of, I don't know if it's nuclear or not. But not that it's necessarily bad. It's just not, not, not a lot of people are, like, super in, invested into that now, you know? Well, and the other idea is that obviously it's best to charge it, like, a charging station but with an electric car you could theoretically plug it into trickle charge overnight and if you're not driving that much it's way more convenient than having to go fill up somewhere with hydrogen that's true yeah yeah it'd probably be easier to convert the gas stations into hydrogen field and charging stations if you're gonna use the locations of gas stations to make them into charging stations it'd be easier to convert them into hydrogen fuel stations i think we spoke about it before about some european country reusing the gas lines and putting hydrogen through them hmm. i have a few astronomy topics um starting with one that's a it's Basically, the newest kind of star we've been able to observe this year is the um, magnetars. They're known for the extremely powerful magnetic fields. Mm-hmm. And this one, <laughs> they've been able to see, is they call it radio loud magnetars that hasn't been observed but until now. It says this is... Interesting because uh, they've never seen this kind of bizarre behavior in a radio loud magnetar. It seems like it's pretty short-lived. And it seems like it has a regular like, pulsar. Over t- it evolved from a regular pulsar over time. And maybe like there are other magnetars Milky Way, but since it's so far away, they can't really like pick up on the frequency. I can't find like exactly what the behavior is. I don't, it's eluding me right now. But it seems like it changes in character from like a bright 
to a week, a week flicker. And yeah, it's interesting. Did you say it's radio loud? That's what they call it, a radio loud magnetar. Hmm. So it just produce a lot of radio waves? Um, it says that they're looking closely at the data to try to capture one of the flips because while it's, while it's occurring because if we can do that, we can possibly map out the, the magnetic fields between the magnetic poles. It seems like the radio beam like flips over from each side of the magnetic pole. crazy i have no idea (laughs) my next topic is interesting because it's uh, begins from observing galaxies that quote die and i guess what they claim as a dying galaxy is when they stop forming stars so that process they haven't really seen until recently using the ALMA, that Atacama large millimeter slash submillimeter array. And I was looking at this before and talked to Nick about it. It's a, it's in that Atacama desert, which is like in Chile, but they have, what is it? 12, uh, 54, 12 meter and 12, seven meter dish sizes, which I guess they that substantial um and these are the same ones that they've been able to observe like black holes and supermassive black holes using and i guess all of these all the countries like north america different teams from north america east asia and europe have um merged together to form this project and the way it can observe these things is it can uh, it can absorb water vapor in the atmosphere and then uh, the dry climate and extreme elevation like provides the right conditions to be able to uh, detect like faint signals from space so yeah I thought that was and Hmm. to understand the what's happening I guess you'd probably want to know what the ALMA is so the ALMA was what allowed them to be able to see what's happening and one of the things the ALMA can pick up on is gas a lot of like gas out in space so said the ejection of one of the galaxies they're observing observing was losing 10,000 suns worth of gas a year um so that means it wouldn't have fuel to make new stars um most stars are made from (laughs) gas that's what they are it says it's uh removing astonishing like 56 46 percent of total cold gas from this galaxy and they believe it could be the ejected gas could be like a tidal t- tail, which are like elongated streams of stars. Or it could be winds caused by star formation. It says, quote, Our studies suggest that gas ejections can be produced by mergers and that winds and tail 
title tales can appear very similar. This might lead us to revise our understandings of how galaxies, quote, die. So, yeah, the Alma has shredded, shed a new light on the mechanics that can halt the formation of stars in distant galaxies. Witnessing such a massive disruption event adds an important piece to the complex um, puzzle of galaxy evolution. Yeah, so it's pretty cool how this new... I don't know how... I couldn't... It didn't really say like exactly when the Alma has been... How long it's been in use, but it seems like they're getting results out of out of it already. And yeah, that's uh, my macroscopic uh, camera, I guess. <laughs> These segues. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah. So I have a couple <laughs> topics here, um, mostly just because I'm sort of constantly looking at uh, photo news. And there's been a couple of big camera announcements recently that I thought were kind of cool to mention. The first one is the Sony A1, which is their top-of-the-line model um, in their uh, interchangeable lens cameras, the full-frame models they make. And uh, historically, in most, you generally would have to choose if you're going to buy a camera, you know, what you're going to use it for. So if you're somebody who does um, sports or wildlife or reportage or something that needs a lot of... Um, basically high frames per second and maybe resolutions not at the highest part of your list um you're, you're looking for fast af and fast shooting then you'd buy a sports model uh, or a sports body if you're looking for highest image quality with the highest pixel count you'd probably buy uh, that model which might be a little bit slower but could give you more detail and there have been a couple models that have come close to providing both but this is really being heralded as a, a model that can do pretty much everything so, you know, instead of buying a Sony A7R, which can do really high res, and a Sony A9, which can be really fast, you just pay double the price, you know, pay the same price of both of them, and you can get it all in one camera now. So it's a 50 megapixel camera that can shoot 30 frames per second at 50 megapixels, which is kind of insane. Um, I think it goes down to 20 frames per second when you're shooting in uh, RAW format or lossless raw or something hmm. but um either way 20 to 30 frames per second at 50 megapixels is kind of insane yeah uh, it's it's <laughs> it's a lot of photos um i you know i don't shoot enough action myself to really know whether that's going to make a massive difference compared to the other sports cameras we've had available but having that resolution at that speed is pretty novel so it's gonna be kind of a big deal um you know just sort of in the history of cameras that it truly is like you don't you, if as long as you pay six thousand five hundred dollars you can get a really, really fast, really high-res camera that can pretty much do everything. Hmm. So that's been, you know, all the different news outlets and YouTube people have been talking about this camera as sort of the god camera because it can do, you know, it can do anything you want to do with it, whether you want to do studio portraits or you want to do, you know, fast action, birds in flight, or, you know, whatever you want to do. Um, so it's been kind of, it's been interesting to see that come out. I think... I, I tried my t- I had I did my time with Sony. I bought a A7R3 and at the time I wasn't even shooting that much. I was really shooting more film. So I didn't maybe give it a fair shot, but I, I never really warmed up to using a Sony camera. They're technical marvels. I just like I've mentioned before on the podcast, I'm not super into how they handle, but you just can't deny that like the technology in them, especially their sensors that they that they make or a division of Sony makes. Um, really high quality stuff so it's going to be cool it's just cool to know that it's uh, coming out and available 
And kind of another big thing is one of the reasons that the, the cameras in our phones can do such a good job, you know, com- com- comparatively, the sensors in these phones is they're, they're tiny, you know, they're like, I don't even know what to say. What are they? Maybe half a centimeter wide or a centimeter wide at most. They're really, really small. Whereas the, the sensor in the camera, like the Sony is going to be, you know, bigger than a postage stamp. It's pretty big. It's like 24 by 36 millimeters. So, um, that the reason why these bigger cameras are always sort of cleaner and better is because they just have a bigger sensor. But um, the one our phones do a pretty good job, and one of the reasons is because of all the the sort of intelligence behind them. They might have kind of crappy hardware for a camera, but they have these really good um, Im- image signal processors. Whether it's going to be the Apple ones, or even um, the Qualcomm ones, or the, you know the software built into Android, any of these things, they take way better pictures than you'd expect from such kind of low end hardware. Um, and part of the reason for that is because they can read the sensors out really fast, so they can take tons of photos you know, per second. And although you might think when you're taking a picture on your phone that you're just going to press the button and it takes a picture, what it really does is it's, it's buffering pictures constantly. It's taking a ton of photos. And then when you press the button, it's it's going, okay, take all the photos around here, blend them together, and, you know, take the, take the detail from the highlights in this photo, the detail from the shadow in this photo, take the expression on the person's face from this photo and blend them all together. And that's why you're getting, yeah. you know, sharper results and stuff. And you ha- we haven't been able to do that with bigger sensors so far, mostly, uh, partly because, well, mostly because the software hasn't been there. Most of the ca- people who make cameras just haven't been able to build that or build that in. Hmm. But a part of it, too, is that it's these, the sensors that are so much bigger and higher quality, they, they just take a longer time to read all the data off of because they're so much bigger. And um, that's kind of, that, that impedes being able to do all that sort of software magic because you can't get the data off the sensor fast enough to be able to make those calculations. But now the Sony one, I think... I read that it's like a thirtieth of a second that it can, you know, like assuming yeah, that it does thirty steady. frames per second, that it can. That's that's fast enough. Now we're we're getting the territory where maybe we could apply some of this sort of machine learning and computational photography to bigger sensors. Yeah. Um. I don't. That, that's not to say this is not. That's not coming with this model, oh. at least with the firmware that it has. But the technology is there now, which is pretty cool. Because until now, the sensors have just been pretty much too slow. So maybe we're slowly getting to a world where we can start adding some of the smarts that we have on our phones to much better hardware that we have in dedicated cameras. You know, no matter how good of a picture your phone can take, it's still a $1,000 phone with a camera module that probably costs 50 bucks versus spending $6,000 on a dedicated camera. So the hardware is going to be a lot better. I'm hoping that we can start to see um, better software. So that's going to be kind of cool. And so that, to me, that's the biggest news of the Sony thing. It's not just that it's a good camera, but it's that people are working now on making the sensors better in different ways. It's not just megapixels um or it's not just better low light it's like better faster readout that can enable new features in the future yeah i wonder what like have you thought about like what are the features or what uh, can this modern uh, um, software bring to the older uh, traditional photography technology yeah i mean kind of like i said i it's not the stuff that like it, mostly we see computational photography um, either in post-processing or we see it just done on the fly in phones and that kind of thing you can't really bring that to older hardware like you can't my cameras that I own right now it can't really be updated with that because they're just too slow but um, with these new cameras hopefully they'll be able to add things like maybe um, automatic HDR merging of like multiple frames in as long as there's not too much movement in the frame maybe you can it'll save out a high file or a JPEG file with much better range just because it can do that really fast. Um, 
Yeah, where the inter- interestingly, a lot of people obviously shoot raw format so they can process things themselves. So you can't really apply. Mm-hmm. You can't. The whole point of that is to not process, not do anything to that file or very little to that file, so that the photographer can choose what to do. But all this, all the amazing computational sport smarts, you know, that will probably make the photos look really good. But that's no longer going to be a totally raw file if you apply it to that. So it'll be interesting to see what people do. I know Apple's come up with a format for their phones where it'll save a fully raw image, but it'll also save on top of that all the sort of computational enhancements that it does. And then you can go back and like yeah. reduce the sharpening or increase the noise reduction or change the color type. Like you can do all of that, but the files are huge um, because it's saving all this extra data. So I don't, I don't really know. It's up to the camera makers to decide how they're going to maintain the balance of producing raw files that photographers still want to use versus you know, in, increasing the quality of their pictures overall by using computational photography. Do you have an opinion about how they might or they should do it? Uh, it's hard to say. I think that f- there's going to be a lot of people that they always are going to want, it's sort of like people who are always going to want to drive a gas car and have a stick shift. There's always going to be people who want to have a camera that gives them a purely raw file and they want to do all the processing themselves. Um, but I think uh, mm-hmm. I think once cameras come out more, that can give you really amazing results, but they're not going to be fully raw. You know, they're going to have done some processing for you. Once we see how good those are, I think people will slowly warm up to it. You know, especially maybe the super fine art people who really just want to completely control it, they can keep doing that. But for most people, like if you're shooting an event, like a wedding or something, and I'm just guessing here, but let's say you have um, your camera smart enough so that when you press the button, it takes, you know, 10 photos in a, in a fraction of a second. And then it automatically discards any of them where the anybody in the group of anybody in the group portraits blinking and then suddenly you don't have to go through and editing and like yeah go through that because the cameras already knows okay we don't need these files we're going to take as many as we need until everybody's eyes are showing you know you could do that in software in the computer mm-hmm. but if the camera can do that on the fly for you um, that'd be amazing or if it can you know any anything like that or maybe you're shooting a landscape and it can just automatically bring the details and the highlights and shadows up and you're not going to blow anything out yeah, you could before you could do that in Photoshop, but if it could just do that in the camera for you and then provide you a really clean file to edit more, maybe that'll be desirable. You know, it's hard to say. Like, I think for me, I, I welcome all this computational stuff as long as I still have some control over the file. If they can make, if they can find a way to make it so yeah. I can still edit the highest quality sort of raw-ish file, then I'm I'm cool with that. I don't want to be stuck in sort of the past. And plus, if I really wanted like files that were <laughs> raw and hard to work with. I would just keep shooting film, which I do. So let, let the digital cameras like get better. You know, <laughs> like I feel like we should just let them mm-hmm. keep evolving, especially now when the technology exists. So it's like, finally we're seeing some interesting movements there. I'm surprised like Apple hasn't like tried to work with Sony to make like a crazy camera because they have like that super crazy M1 or M M2X coming out. And that has, pretty crazy processing power and you could probably like process all that data pretty fast <laughs> yeah i mean already you know the, the chips and iphones they, they have like a large sort of a large portion is built built just to process like images and so that's to process still images and to process video um the video from iphones like looks really really good for for the quality of the sensor um and part of that's like they do all this all these tricks like exposure blending so you're shooting at 30 frames per second but it it actually is shooting at 60 and it's blending the exposure from two of them to increase the dynamic range and um 
you, you think, you know, why can't we apply this to big cameras? It's just going to make, if, if the big cameras already look better, they're going to look even better if you can use that tag. Yeah. So, you know, obviously they can't just steal Apple stuff. Like, and Apple's <laughs> not going to partner with a camera company. Uh, I guess not. But they could use something similar. They could just, you know, they could hire engineers and figure out how to do it themselves. So I think we're at the point where the, you know, software matters so much. It's going to be interesting to see. It's no longer about, like, back in the old, old days, you just had to create a box that had a hole in it and some film. And then the, whether the hole was a lens or a pinhole, like the, the cameras were essentially simple, right? And now it's really about, you know, anybody can come up with a, a camera body and a sensor, but not everybody can come up with really good software. Software is pretty difficult. So it, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see what camera companies kind of keep evolving that, which ones start to flounder as they fall behind because software quality starts to matter more. What would you think if Apple made a big camera? I mean, I feel like it would be one of those things where it would be very expensive. Ultimately, the quality would probably be super high, but it would also be limited in random ways. So it would like take the best quality images, but then there would be certain failure modes where it like, would randomly be not quite as good. And it would also be like $8,000. And then I'd also suddenly need to you know get a loan. It would be, it'd be kind of a crazy situation. But Darn. I mean, honestly, yeah. They, I think if anybody made a camera they would probably be able to make a really cool one. But that's like, you know, they're more interested in just making the iPhone the best camera that you can get as opposed to, I think cameras is just such a small market, especially for people who would, who would spend the money to buy a dedicated Apple camera. But Hey, a guy can, can dream, right? Cause (laughs) I've used kind of a lot of cameras now. And like, like there are certain places where there, there are certain people I know Leica and Hasselblad, um, they're really expensive, but they have some models that were, kind of apple inspired you know they're like milled out of a solid piece of aluminum and they have touchscreen interfaces and you start to think oh maybe if apple had made a camera it'd be sort of like this Hmm. but i don't know Hmm. yeah so that was that's kind of cool that sony thing and then also briefly there's there's a new fuji camera i'm a big fan of fuji people might know that Uh, (laughs) and i bought a gfx 100 relatively recently months ago last year and uh, that's a great camera still amazes me whenever i use it and it's also a $10,000 camera. And they just released a couple days ago a, the GFX 100S, which is almost exactly the same camera, but smaller, like so much kind of nicer to handle, and uh, $4,000 cheaper. So that's great. What? <laughs> um, and I, honestly, I, luckily enough, I got it new on a discount where I basically spent the same price. I spent like six grand on mine which is still a shitload of money, oh, but like, yeah, so I'm not really feeling bad about the price. I actually think the price is awesome because the camera now that you can get from Fuji for six grand is like, mm-hmm. you know, sort of the Sony's also six and a half grand. So these are not cheap. Ca- you know, nobody, no amateur is buying these, but if you want a high end camera, that Fuji GFX 100 S is going to be um, pretty amazing. It's like, I, it's again, it's the camera basically that I have but miniaturized. My impression of it is that it's some of the highest image quality of any camera you can buy right now. So Anything to make it easier for people to get is awesome. Because, you know, obviously very, very few people are going to spend ten grand. A few more people could spend six, and then, you know, not that many, but, you know, I don't know. I, I like, I love the system, and I want more people to buy it so that Fuji will keep making more lenses and stuff. So it's kind of, it's awesome to know that, like, Sony just released a really interesting, awesome new camera, and then Fuji's basically doing a $4,000 price decrease and still selling an awesome camera. So the the camera market may be shrinking in some ways, but there's still some exciting times. I think right now is a good time. If if you're into high end cameras and you have, you know, six grand to burn, uh, now is not a bad time to be looking for new cameras because you have some good choices. <laughs> yeah, 
For the rest of us, though, I guess you could just be shooting on your iPhone and getting the best computational photography, <laughs> getting photos that can beat your uh, your Sony A1 or your GFX 100S. <laughs> Did you have anything else, Alex, to add to that? No. Um, I'm going to buy a phone that has a really <laughs> sucky camera, so I, I, I'm not a camera. Well, enthusiast. perfect. Maybe you could buy one of these, the Sony <laughs> and the gonna... Fuji. They're both good choices, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the phone I'm gonna get is gonna have a five megapixel back facing camera. Well, the size is how you use it. Yeah, the front facing is a two megapixel. Well, you're gonna need a lot of computational photography for that, but you know what? It's uh. <laughs> yeah, maybe yeah. Format isn't everything. Maybe Alex will um, be the developer for it. Yeah, I can make a. I could make the Linux uh, camera. Well, or just take twenty pictures and stitch program. them together. Then you have a hundred megapixels. How about that? Yeah. yeah, that sounds like too much work for me. <laughs> um, yeah, I wanted to touch on a few more astrophysic uh, topics. It's funny because I always thought like I've always compared like black holes to like a water drain vortex, and it's funny because they actually alluded they've been like trying to apply like bathtub water uh, vortex physics to black hole and it seems to actually correspond quite nicely because I don't know I I worked (laughs) there's drains everywhere because you're doing dishes and stuff so (laughs) (laughs) they would um, basically study the the drain vortex and they compared it to the black hole accretion treating matter as a ripple and field and I hadn't thought of that like that the ripple could be a like a ripple in space time itself so that they're saying like they could measure the ripples and the water vanishing down a swirling drain might have to say something about like the waves energy energy disappearing so that, that that makes sense to me there's also been thinking like uh like maybe if you push the the water down the plug hole it you can change the speed or how much water that could correspond to like the mass of a black hole and so when waves were sent rippling into the system towards the drain they dropped when they pushed extra water in accelerating the accretion process the it would still like maintain the same le- level of water going in, but um, yeah, there's there's a lot of things I thought was that if they compared it, that you could probably learn a lot. And it seems like so far it corresponds pretty strongly. Yeah, it's they've been just watching and trying to learn more from black holes through water um, vortexes. It says, this could be extremely useful information, partially because an increase in mass change changes the gravitational... Because, okay. Because an increase in mass changes the gravitational strength of a black hole, changes the way the black hole warps its surrounding space-time, as well as the effect the black hole has on the accretion disk. In addition, it offers a new way to study how waves can affect black black hole dynamics. 
And <laughs> Patrick, one of the person people studying, is like, what was really striking for us is that the back reaction is large enough that it causes the water height across the entire system to drop so much they can see it by. This is really unexpected. So it's, I think it's cool how there's so much similarities in like space and water and you could learn from both and apply them similarly. And uh, one <laughs> one of the article I found was uh, the black holes can th- <laughs> theoretically be used to uh, hone its energy. Uh, not anytime soon, but apparently... Um, you can accelerate uh, <laughs> plasma particles to negative energy. And um, they said in later in the article, they they say that um, the way they generate energy is... Where is it? Hmm, I don't know where it went. <laughs> and it, it was something about how um, <laughs> magnetic... Uh, energy could be used to um, create uh, to be like the the source of energy yeah that's how you create electricity what happens is that you have like a magnetic field and you spin a coil of uh, wire in it and the change of area within that uh, coil um, causes the electrons to move within the wire Mm mm-hmm so, uh, yes, if if you have black holes somehow modifying the area within those, um, within the coil of wire, then it's producing electricity. Yeah. I don't know how we're going to contain these black holes from destroying things, but that's, uh, <laughs> and then the, then the last one I thought was the most interesting. It's uh, <laughs> it, it's kind of like an old fateful, but out in outer space because this galaxy every 114 days like erupts. Um, so you can like observe it and predictably <laughs> see it comes on every so once in a while. Um. And they proposes three theories to how um, and why these um, why this galaxy happens to do it. And one theory is there's two supermassive black holes that are in the center of uh, this galaxy. It's called Assassin Fourteen Ko. <laughs> uh, it says it's possible that the two black holes aren't close enough to have effect, but. Um, the light, it says, they're interacting in a way that causes the constant light fluctuation to, um, the black holes are interacting in a way that causes uh, constant light fluctuation. So every 114 days, they interact in that way. The second is um, one of the black holes causes disruption in its disk when it's passed between the black hole and the earth so it's perceived as um or from its perception from the earth so it caused like a a flare to appear and then the third theory is 
the most plausible, they say. It's a tidal disruption event that, in this scenario, it says a star with a very elliptical orbit goes around the black hole and approaches the black hole, but the singularity (laughs) grabs a piece of the star and causes a bright flash and the star loses some of its mass. So I thought that was pretty crazy. It's cool to think that <laughs> um, maybe that uh, a black hole is the re- <laughs> the reason why there's this tr- huge like eruption from this galaxy all the time. And yeah, that's uh, the last one. I thought it was pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm grateful for Trevor and Nick's contribution. <laughs> Trevor had like 15 topics. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Nick, have you been able to work much on your music? Um, a little bit. I've had a couple things where like I'll come up with some new ideas and it always starts for me with like some idea for a specific part of a song, and sometimes I develop mm-hmm. it and sometimes it just kind of sits there. So I have a couple of things yeah. that I've just been working on, like, and it really depends what I listen to, <laughs> you know, like if I spend mm-hmm. a whole week, like obsessively listening to Shakira, cause I'm in that mood, that's going to give me, that's going to put me <laughs> in a different mood to make music than it would be if I was listening to, you know, like, I don't know, metal or something. Um, and, you know, I like all kinds uh-huh. of music, so it's been, you know, it's been interesting. I've been kind of in a pop mood recently, but, um, I don't know. I, I hope, I hope to come up with some more stuff soon. That's like. I, nothing I've started has really like gone past just coming up. Oh, that's a cool idea for a chorus or something. But mm-hmm. maybe I just need to sit here and I, I just started today something new that um, sounds like purposely super 80s, which is pretty fun. So it's fun to just choose all this cool. cheesy synths and see how that works. But <laughs> maybe I'll develop that. Maybe I won't. But it's, yeah. I don't know. I haven't had so much time this week. So maybe my goal right now is just to like find something new that I can come up with more than one part and like see if I can take it somewhere. Mm-hmm. Do you think you might have a song for next time or not? To be honest, I don't really know. I'll have to see. Okay. <laughs> maybe I'll make pro- maybe I'll make some progress this weekend, or maybe I won't. But I'll let you know if I do. Yeah. Okay. Well, this is gonna be a long t- podcast edit. Uh, All right. <laughs> see you guys later. <laughs> okay. See ya. See ya. See ya.